Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark as always, as usual, as always, episode 152. Friday, 28th of August, 2020. And Mark, the lockdown continues here in Victoria. And arrival in the post today, Mark, I want to talk to you about, we didn't chat about this beforehand, two face masks, which I ordered seven weeks ago, (laughs) (laughs) finally arrived. It was um, when when they announced the stage four compulsory face mask wearing here in Victoria, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. I ordered um, two or three lots of them. We have a good couple of good family friends that have made some excellent face masks, which, which just um, reusable ones, which are the ones that we are currently using. But initially I jumped online and I ordered a couple of masks from eBay and I particularly chose the two that I chose because they promised you know, very quick turnaround and delivery <laughs> postage within a couple of days. And, yeah, um, two arrived today and they were posted. Well, who knows when they were posted, but they were ordered, yeah, six weeks ago. Um, so I was a tad unhappy and I had been communicating with the, the seller and I think I will be saying to them, look, I don't think it's – I've ordered others and I've got more than enough at the moment, so – I don't want them, and sorry, you did the reason why I ordered. And I mentioned that to them in a correspondence, an email um, on eBay that I didn't. Um, I wanted them specifically because they promised fast delivery, and that ain't too fast to me. Mark. How, how how are you going? Where we've been um, wearing them at work too, and um, and you know, I've I, I'm I've been an advocate for putting them on your face. I think. Uh, that that's the right thing to do. But um, I'd be lying to you, Brendan, if I said it was easy. There's times when um, uh, when uh, you can't be heard as easily and um, you're trying to communicate. Well, my wife says that's a good thing. <laughs> I don't know about you. Yes, and, and the fogging up of the, of the spectacles, the glasses, is a bit of a, a difficult one. And there's all sorts of thoughts about how to try to stop that, including the type of mask that you use. But I've always found it a little bit tricky, even when I'm wearing a, a, surgical. a classical surgical mask. Yeah, um, it, it can be, can be a bit. Um, so, if you've got any tips there, mate, do you have any tips there for for surgical masks and stopping fogging of glasses and or um, I do, Brendan. I magnification. Do yes. Um, the um, and it's a um, scuba diving technique that um, that if you uh, use the <laughs> the same technique as the the scuba divers, there are commercial anti fog uh, solutions. But um, very often, very often, <laughs> you can just use a um, uh, well, even um, just a. <laughs> Bit of dishwashing detergent. Is that what you do? <laughs> yep just just give them a, a bit of a surface tension change, and um, and away you go. It's not nearly as bad once you've once you've uh, and, um, uh, and, um, treated the surface, shall we say? I spit on your gravy, Mark. Um, well, 
yes, I have thought about using the what dishwashing liquid did you say? But I haven't yet. Um, I think it's about what I tend to do is it's this sort of balancing act of where you perch the glasses on your nose and how you sit the mask, Mark. Uh, well, sometimes think- in the heat of battle, um, when you're doing a particularly difficult bit of surgery, Mark, that's when um, things can get quite heated and and frosty. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. It is a, a, a common thing for me to, um, you know, be quite excited about the uh, wonderful explanation I've just given a client and, and with a couple of deep breaths, I exhale at the conclusion of the explanation. Um, the glasses go all foggy. If I haven't wipe them down with some surfactant beforehand. Well, I've written that down, Mark. Things to do. Um, stop my glasses fogging, Mark. Yes. So that's what's been happening here. We've been, we've, we've had. Uh, that's how boring we are. We have discussions <laughs> about face masks, Mark, um, and trying to make sure we're home before curfew. I feel like a 12-year-old again um, because we have our curfew between 8 p.m. and I think it's 5 a.m. that nobody's supposedly allowed outside um, anywhere or even exercising unless you're um, outside on, on official business. If, you've, if you're doing a business, it's allowed under the lockdown. So, yeah. So I'm under curfew and I've got fogged up glasses and uh, I'm not doing much else, Mark. Um, what about yourself? Well, it's um, even though we're not officially under a curfew or anything as, um, as uh, uh, imposing as that, um, we, we still have the same uh, concerns and about, um, about our uh, coronavirus circumstance and how we deal with the clients and um, there's still that background anxiety. We're pretty, it's pleasing to note even down where you guys are that the numbers seem to be dropping consistently under the effects of the restrictions. Uh, But, geez, it's just plays on your mind, doesn't it, Brendan? Yes, and who knows when or if ever everything will get back to normal and Annie and I were talking about travel and you know all those weird things that we used to do in the past it seems so long ago um hopefully things will get back to somewhere near normal as far as that goes at some stage um i'm going to unless you have a do you have a review mark otherwise i'll jump into a news story let's go with the news i've got a couple of reviews coming up brendan we've we've been investing you know end of financial year um uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, we've um, got a few items, new items to use in the hospital, and I've got a couple of reviews coming up. But this week, let's get into the stories. Excellent. And I have the same as well, which reminds me I do have another review. We, I mentioned that I did have one for next week, but I've, I've just sort of another one we could do. So my first news story, Mark, is it's about death. It's about 5,000 Burmese pythons have been removed from the Florida Everglades and Burmese pythons. Florida wildlife officials announced last week, and this news report was what well, says two weeks ago. <laughs> that doesn't tell me much, does it, Mark? Um, I think it was th- this month um, that they've removed over 5,000 since the start of this particular 
program, sorry, I was just trying to get back to the top of the article here, since they started the elimination programs three years ago and teams with Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and the South Florida Water Management District worked together to to reach the milestone effort they mentioned. And every snake counts, said alligator Ron Bergron, um, who called the milestone another win for the Everglades, Mark. Um, And scrolling down, early this year, they labelled a Burmese python hunt the Python Bowl, Mark, to coincide with Super Bowl, and they bagged 80 snakes as the hunters competed for cash prizes. And I'll tell you what, they're not paid that much. Um, The state... They enlisted python hunters to cull the invasive species because they're, for those listeners who don't know, they're a non-native species, which is why they're trying to lower those numbers from the Everglades. Um, They doubled the ranks of experienced hunters to 50 late last year. And at that time, they were paying an hourly rate of $8.65 mark um, for the python hunters. But they also offered bonus bounties based on the length of the snake or for finding a nest of eggs. Um, You know, if they were canny, Mark, they'd wait for those eggs to hatch out and then they'd, you know, be bagging um, if um, an extra bounty or two or, you know, 50 if they let them um, hatch out there. So the action team has removed more than 1,700 snakes since early 2017, um, while the elimination program by another um, system has captured nearly 3,400. And the snake began appearing in the Everglades more than 20 years ago when they were imported as pets. And and this um, is a good segue to one of the other news stories that we'll talk about later, Mark, um, regarding our avian animals that may or may not be let back into Australia. So there we go. So the snake bowl, Mark, has occurred and that, gone and do- it'll probably occur next year. That story has so many worrying aspects. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like layers upon. It's the, it's um, you know, like an onion. That each time you take one layer off and cry about it, um, there's another layer. <laughs> I, th- I think the title should be "Kill 'em, Kill 'em All." <laughs> <laughs> yes. What's your new story? I think you've got one that's a little bit more uplifting. Well, I I was really excited about this one, Brendan, because it has been um, one of my big worries in life that the one of the forms of renewable energy that I would really love to get behind and be an outspoken advocate for, it does tend to bonk a few birds on the head and kill them. Um, And I know the the esteemed president of the USA has um, taken to lecturing people about the number of birds that are killed by uh, wind turbines um, and that being one of the, you know, the, the, the bad things about them. Um, and particularly because they tend to uh, knock out apex predators, um, you know, the soaring birds like uh, birds of prey. Um, but this article um, that uh, is uh, a research review, um, it tells us that... Um, that a simple, simple expedient can decrease the number of uh, collisions with birds by 70%, um, which is an outstanding result. And, Brendan, what would you guess, like of all the things that you could choose to do to wind turbines to make them less 
interesting to birds or, or, or there's probably still interesting, I suppose, to make them visible to birds so that they don't fly into them. I don't know that I, I don't, I've been, like I've actually thought about this myself and I would never have come up with this. It's so simple. Simple and cheap and, yeah, you'd, again, there's some smart people out there, you know, and we'd, yeah, I would have been thinking about changing the the shape of them, um, the the speed of them, the size of them, the length of the blades, those sorts of things. Um, perhaps they're producing some sort of you know subsonic low low sound you know, that, that birds are detecting. Um, so what happened, Mark? What did well, they find out? Uh, the a recent paper was published in Ecology and Evolution by researchers from the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research, and what they discovered was that they just need to paint one of the three blades they need to paint it black if, the, if there's one blade that's black and the other two are white 70 percent fewer birds get clocked it's awesome brendan you have switched off. so no i'm not <laughs> switching off i was I, I thought you were gonna go on from that so why why do you think they came up with that it's a yeah. good title for a song, isn't it? Painted well, black. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, look, I think when you when I actually, you know, it's like you said before. There's people that are much much smarter than you and I, um, but but I can imagine that um, that the birds whose visual acuity is much greater than ours, that um, three things spinning very very fast in the wind at the same color would just not draw their attention but if you stick one different colored one in the mix um they would pick up on it and all of a sudden they'd be going oh there's something spinning around at high speed i'm going to avoid it and in fact the birds with the highest visual acuity um those uh which were the it was one of the 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 white-tailed eagle um after they'd painted the the single blade of the triplet um they um they had no white-tailed eagle carcasses recorded in the vicinity of the blades after painting them um and i think it is that it's just a simple um, visual stimulus it draws their attention the birds see something that uh, they didn't see before as easily um and um and they avoid it it's awesome brendan it's excellent and gee i'd love to have written a paper or co-authored a paper that simple and that that elegant uh, and effective in my lifetime. I know, yes. I know. I'm, I I often think that it would be nice to um to go to your to your grave to you know and be able to say, yep, I did that and that made a significant difference. And and you know what, those people with um those strange letters, circles after the A's and everything <laughs> who wrote this paper, they and and it's called Paint It Black. Efficacy of increased wind turbine rotor blade visibility to reduce avian fatalities. They can go to their grave with that knowledge that they have made a difference, Brendan. Well done. All those people with those names I can't pronounce. Thank you um, for doing that. Yes, and and also thank you to our our prime researcher. I think um, that person forwarded most if not all of these news items today although we had seen a couple of them beforehand um, we cannot do without that person that's for sure um, and my next one well it's a bit of a non-news story um, 
thanks to our um, researcher. Um, <laughs> but it was quite an interesting one. Um, new method for calculating dogs' ages, Mark. Um, it's better than multiplying by seven, which is a traditional one. And I don't know about you, Mark. Did you work in vet clinics where you had those charts um, that were put up in yeah, the consult yes. room and in we the waiting room? And we don't have them anymore. Yeah, calculate your dog's age, um, and it would have one, seven, two, fourteen, etc., um, or equivalent. Sometimes, so they they skewed it slightly, didn't they, on some of those charts? Once they get became um, got to the older ages for the for the animal, I think one year was equaling eight or ten or something or other. But um, yeah, this is just another little. Well, that's a bit of a non, non – it's not as important as the one that you just dubbed in, um, Mark. But um, a study published in Cell Systems, US scientists say it's wrong, saying one year equals seven years for dogs. Um, and their comment was, dogs are much older than we think, said the researchers, and I, they devised what they think is a more accurate formula to calculate a dog's age based on the chemical changes – in DNA as organisms grow old, Mark. And, uh, well, basically they ended up um, saying that what's surprising is exactly how old a one-year dog is, according to them. It's like a 30-year-old human. Yeah. And um, and they, I think that was based on methylation marks in the DLA, in, in the DNA. Um, but, gee, um, reading the rest of the article, Mark, I, I, I don't think I'll put putting this chart up in my in my waiting room either, Mark, because I, I just don't like the the thought of and and I'm sure you get it a lot and we certainly get it with our non canine species as well. Um, you know, my lizard, my my bird, my ferret, um, his X years of age, isn't that the equivalent of, you know, 60, 70, 80, 120 in human years? Um, and I just say no. <laughs> <laughs> they're just they're just seven yeah that's right they're seven um so yes um having said that there was it was um it was of interest um that the method that they were using to try and determine aging factors in them um and uh they mentioned that um they get similar similar and well one of the researchers quotes is i tend to think of it very much like when you look at someone's face and guess their age based on their wrinkles, grey hair, and other features. These are just similar kind of features on the molecular level that they were studying in dogs. They were they were looking for markers indicating the the age of those dogs, and they they studied 104 Labrador retrievers um, from a few weeks old puppies to 16 year old dogs, and compared the changes in the methylation patterns to humans. Um, and they they devised a formula that they think better matches the canine human life stages. And their final you know, notes were based on it. Based, yep. I'll, I'll just finish this last little bit, Mark. Based on this, an eight week eight week old dog is approximately the age of a nine month old baby, and the average twelve year lifespan of a Labrador retrievers correspond to the worldwide life expectancy 70 years of human well and isn't it funny that if you multiply 12 what by seven <laughs> <laughs> so yeah well that about sums sums it up mark um it was of some interest but of little importance as far as i'm concerned in my opinion um what's your second news story mate well 
I've returned to the deep south, Brendan, with this story. Um, it, it, I I know I bore people silly, but oh, Antarctica, I'm dreaming. You talked about um, uh, about uh, during the time of coronavirus where, where um, you know, not allowed to travel and we're looking forward to the time when we can travel and um, yes. and I am so looking forward to the time when I can return to this part of the world and, and in particular um, look at the penguins. And this article is all about the penguins. Um, it is a, um, a take in the Berkeley News on a particular DNA study which looked at um, the genomes of the 18 recognised species of penguins um, uh, to try and piece together one of those um, charts that might give us an indication of uh, where of how long they've been around, what factors made them uh, develop, and uh, and um, what they, what factors have governed their evolution, and where did they come from? So the whole the main focus of this. Uh, review in the lay literature, the Berkeley News of the the uh, the report, the scientific report, is that um, the origins, the ancestor of all modern penguins, would appear. Um, well, the researchers claim conclusively that the penguins arose in the cool coastal regions of Australia and New Zealand, and not, as previously thought the frigid waters of Antarctica. Um, and they pinpoint the origin of penguins at about 22 million years ago. Um, and, uh, and yes, I, um, I'm fascinated to know that there are large numbers of um, fossil penguins that uh, they can adorn various stages of penguin history with. So they sort of know um, where they've come from and how they've evolved quite quite specifically, and now applying this DNA analysis, um, uh, identifying the connections between different genomes, um, uh, they've been able to... Um, so the question now becomes, Brendan, did they actually uh, begin their evolution in the coastal waters of Australia or New Zealand? What's your tip on that one? Oh, we won't go there, Mark. I've been invited over to New Zealand to give a um, be a keynote speaker, which we had to delay this year, and we're hoping of having it next year. So, very I diplomatic, will, Brendan. Very I will sit on the fence and um, say oh, I think it's 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 Australasian. It's <laughs> it's 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 both, isn't it? Um, um, they had a little bit of follow-on from that, didn't they? Um, that they looked at the, the speciation of penguins, didn't they? Um, I'm trying to find that little bit. bit um, looking at, um, they disproved a paper published last year suggesting that the close, closely related king and emperor penguins were a sister group to the Gen Two and the Adelie penguins, that, and they found them. They were. They found that the king and em emperor penguins are the sister groups to all other penguins. Um, so yeah, it was a. It's very. Um, you've picked some very um, decent um, articles there, haven't you, Mark? And I've gone with uh, fluff. I've gone with the fluff with mine, as usual. <laughs> it is. It's a fascinating thing to contemplate all this. Um, you know, so many uh, theories of of evolution are being overturned by the power of um, DNA analysis, and even you know, just general taxonomy is constantly being reviewed once 
the genomes of certain species are uh, analysed with these new powerful techniques. So yeah, it is. Um, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty special thing to um, to be alive in the time when this uh, this um, information um, is being pieced together, and we have a far greater understanding of things like where the penguins came from. We're living in a good time, Mark. We've got um, some bad things like COVID happening, but we've also got um, DNA analysis, and we've got snake bowl. We've got we've got lots of things happening that um, that keep us active and um, interested. And relating to snake bowl and exotic species, Mark, um, we we were briefly going to chat about, or you were going to address um, as sort of a, a main topic, but really just a fourth news article um it's a, a localized um topic but i think it's something that all our listeners would be interested in hearing about it's the australian federal government is considering lifting the ban on importing parrots and you can chat about the species that are or are not allowed um, into australia um, 25 years after it was introduced the ban mark so what what's the story with this and and do you think this ban will be lifted and we'll get all these um, exotic non-native parrots that um, can flood or fly into Australia markers pets or not? Well, I'm scared, Brendan. I'm scared about this quite a lot because um, uh, because I think that my my limited understanding was that, um, you know, it's been 25 years, but the, the, the it was very difficult to import um animals into Australia before that. There was a general ban that was formularised into a more specific one 25 years ago, and that's the law that's being reviewed. Um, I just worry that, um, that, that there's a real potential for things to be brought into the country that carry diseases that will be dangerous to our uh, native animals. I think that... Um, that while, you know, those novel diseases, if they come in um, and they spill over into the wild population, there are some very vulnerable populations and we could see them gone, Brendan. So as a summary, Mark, as far as what it, it, it – am I correct in saying that basically it's illegal to import live citizen birds into Australia, um, yes. Since that ban was ban yeah. was done, the only so, ones that come in now. You, if you have a, if you lived in America and you were emigrating to Australia and you had a bird, you could uh, bring it with you as a pet. There is a process. Much it's a little bit more involved than the, um, you know, you can do this. New Zealand as well, I think, is yeah. it? Uh, yeah. um, so you can get those pet ones in. Um, yes. But other outside of that, there's. Um, there's no option to bring them in. There were a couple of times in that 25-year period where specific exemptions were made for uh, particular groups of birds, particularly macaws, were brought in. Um, and and there is some controversy over that because it is suspected that uh, that those macaws did may well have brought diseases into the country that were not here yes. before. So the thought is with this, and I think they're calling for for um, they are comments on yeah. it, um, which I think is an important um, thing that uh, people, um, stakeholders should should get out there and make comments on it, including our groups here in Australia. Um, 
I think what the they what they're considering is countries with a with a history of avian trade with Australia, such as Canada, France. Reading off one of the article that we'll link to, um, Germany, Ireland, New Zealand, the Netherlands, and the USA and the UK would be approved for export of captive parrots without the need for further assessment of them. Um, and a department spokesperson said the rule changes were being considered now because advances in science and testing meant concerns about disease could be managed. Mark, what do you think about that? <laughs> I think that's an argument that someone who doesn't care about disease but really wants to get a new parrot might put forward. Yes, it's a concern. And, and I mean, what are they going to try and do? Make, um, have them all tested for everything, and and even if you are tested for all the diseases, you're still not going to um, get everything, are we? We're not going to pick up everything, and and we're going to miss things that we're not testing because we don't know what to test for as well. Um, so, this is true. Um, so, what's going to happen, Mark? What do you think will happen with this? Well, that's what I started this discussion with my the fact that I'm worried because I think that once powerful vested interests, once that we've had this discussion before, Brendan, once the money becomes involved, um, and and the thing about a lot of the imports would be that the birds that are imported would be very uncommon here, and so they would, in the first instance, uh, attract a premium price, and uh, of course in the way of um, uh, livestock. Once the the animals are bred, their price would drop. So the people who manage to import them are likely to recoup a significant amount of money um, and, um, and the problems that are associated with those animals, whether it's the disease or the potential for feral populations, um, uh, those things will be left for other people to worry about down the track. Um, and I don't, and you know, the the same arguments were made when those macaws were one, one of the uh, shipments of macaws that come in that we could test them and rule out that they were carrying disease. The disease that they um, did bring into the country was um, was not um, was was uh, not even able to be tested for at that time. So. Yeah, yep. the people who get in early um, may not necessarily be um, the sorts of people you want them to be importing anyway, and they're likely to make a lot of money, as you say. It's almost like a pyramid scheme, isn't mm. it? Um, people who want to get in there quick and um, may have backing of undesirables. And um, what do you think find- about this argument too? There's a one of the arguments is that if the the at the moment, there is illegal import of um, of species, um, and if we regulate it, um, if we have legal import, then then it will be safer and there'll be less risk. But um, I th- my my um, anecdotal observations is that um, legal importation does nothing to stop the illegal importation. Um, If anything, it provides a better cover for people to say, oh, no, these animals have been bred by these animals that were legally imported. Um, So I I don't accept the the argument that um, allowing legal imports will will allow better control and be more likely to prevent disease. I don't think, I think it's an untrue argument. 
Yes. Well, you could say it's something, I would say something a little bit controversial. It could be something similar to saying, let's make all guns legal um, and, and keep tabs on them because um, it'll be less bad as if we um, banned automatic weapons, etc. So, <laughs> you are uh, getting out there, Brendan. <laughs> so that would be my sort of thought on that, Mark. And, and I, I certainly don't think it's worked with. Um, you know the times when they've tried with other other species, and when you look at the illegal illegal um, import of other animals like reptiles, for instance, I, I you know I, it's not going to stop. And doing moratoriums on them, you know, where there's money in it, people try and make a buck with it. I know there'll, there'll be the quick the the twenty fifty six parrot bowl. <laughs> yes, they will. They will, and hopefully, you're getting paid more than eight dollars um, um, an hour to to capture them, Mark, or to net them, or whatever way you try and catch them um, with the parrot. But at least they're not they're not flying those um, those snakes, Mark. Um, yes, although you could probably get some of those um, if you're good at climbing trees, Mark. You can um, you can get the nests, can't you? Um, for those illegal parrots. So, yes, it's something we'll keep a watch out on and we'll report back to our listeners. Um, but it is a bit of a concern. And, and, you know, getting back to, say, reptiles, for instance, it's what I say to the, um, and I haven't seen any for many, many a long time, um, if I see somebody with a suspected illegal um, exotic reptile mark, I will spend most of my consult time with that person and that animal trying to educate them and say to them look this is why you shouldn't be keeping these animals um, because we've got so many amazing especially here in Australia amazing reptiles that you can keep as pets here why would you want to look over your shoulder your whole life because you have a Burmese python or a, you know a, 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 a boa constrictor which is illegal here in Australia as a pet um when you can have a black-headed python, you can have all sorts of fantastic um, um, snake species instead. So I just don't get it, Mark. I don't get it. Do you? And I don't understand it either. I just do not understand it. And um, and I think uh, uh, that my exhortation to all our listeners is to contact their their uh, the professional organisation, particularly in Australia here. Um, and I know the. AAVAC uh, are preparing a submission, but um, the federal government's asking uh, everyone who has a, a stakeholder interest and all our veterinary friends should uh, um, just whack a few words onto an e onto a, a um, comment so that um, at least Warren Inch, the minister concerned, gets a bit of an idea of the concern people have. Well said, Mark. I don't think I can add to that. And I think with that, we will say goodbye and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.